Today's podcast is presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. I recently joined as a member, and you can too. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. That's podgo.co at p-o-d-g-o dot c-o. When you become a member, enter Suburban Folk in the podcast that you heard about them. Your host, Greg Rotersheimer, is now a designated financial coach. If your financial situation is causing you stress because of debt, budgeting, or saving for retirement, and anything in between, contact me to discuss how I can coach you to financial success. Email me at greg at suburbanfolk.com or call me at 804-592-1871 for a 15-minute free consultation to get started with your plan. Health, travel, finance, parenting, and home improvement. This is the Suburban Folk Podcast. $250 a month into my child's 529 from the month that they start kindergarten, I should be able to pay for 80% of my child's college. Because I don't trust that most people will eat their vegetables. So usually our kind of standard is three servings of vegetables per meal. You take something like a a two by six and you cut it with a circular saw. That's like a superpower. Those middle school years are not as fun, but... At that age, they're still willing to talk to you. Welcome to the Suburban Folk Podcast. I'm Greg Rotersheimer, your host. Today, we're going to continue our journey into the world of education. As a recap from past episodes, we've talked about the decisions for schools to be virtual due to the pandemic lockdowns. We've talked to others that are in the forefront of innovation in the world of education. And we're continuing that journey today, hopefully to help parents realize what tools they have available to them as they are navigating the world of education for their kids. My guest today is Aditya Nagrath. He's the founder and CEO of Elephant Learning. It's a platform to build math intuition and overcome math anxiety from preschool to middle school mathematics with a low monthly subscription fee. Thanks, Aditya, for joining the program. I'm glad you reached out because it seems like I've really been doing a lot of deep dives into the world of education and where there are areas for improvement and also using innovation. So I think we're going to have a really interesting conversation here. Do you want to kick us off by telling us about your background and how did you come up with the idea for Elephant Learning? I've got a PhD in math and computer science from the University of Denver. From there, uh, we started a software development firm uh, that basically did software development for hire. And uh, around uh, 2016, I was approached by one of my professors from uh, graduate school and he had a National Science Foundation grant that he was trying to apply for in which that you had to take uh, National Science Foundation research and try to turn it into a business. The idea was was that he had some math games that they had created from that research, um, along with some other research that was done to try to figure out you know, how to navigate a curriculum that's more complex than a straight line in order to kind of feed activities that would be right at the student's level. And and basically, he wanted to sell this to schools. And I was telling him, you know, I don't really see a business there because, like, I, I was watching things on the news where uh, Pearson or, or some other company had been bribing principals at, like, $1,100 gift cards apiece. And it's like, well, if it's already gotten that far, you know, when you email these guys, they're just not going to be able to open your email either, right? There's just going to be a very low trust factor involved. And it's not a bar um, that that um, I think we can we can climb. 
So what he said to me was that um, that many that most kindergarten students enter kindergarten unprepared for the kindergarten curriculum. So four out of five uh, students enter unprepared. And, you know, I kind of found that hard to believe. I said, you know, Alvaro, how is that even possible? He said, well, what happens is that kindergarten believes that counting to 10 is give me 10 things. And the student slides over 10 things and stops on 10. Whereas most parents think that counting to 10 is saying the numbers one through 10. And so there's this gap in communication that occurs that, I mean, I don't know if it's anyone's fault, really, but that causes this initial gap in understanding the teacher coming into kindergarten. And this happens mainly a, a, along income lines because it's the top 20% income earners that can afford to uh, send their students to preschool. And in preschool, they ensure that the student can count to 10 the way kindergarten means counting to 10. So it's four out of five students basically the lowest 80% income earners that are entering unprepared. And then basically what he said was that preschool math scores predict uh, third grade reading scores better than preschool reading scores. And so that was pretty surprising. And the other research that he had said something like preschool math scores had predicted fifth grade overall scores, uh, meaning that it wasn't just math affected, meaning it was all subjects that were affected. And again, I kind of found that hard to believe. I said, you know, you're going to have to tell me some reason as to how this could be true. And what he said was just taking the example that we, we already looked at, which was counting to 10. In order to do it the way kindergarten prescribes it, the student has to be able to hold 10 in their head as they're counting it out to remember on 10 to, to stop counting. It's kind of like chewing gum and walking at the same time for the first time, right? So the more math that they're doing over time, seems like there's more problem solving and brain skills that are that are involved, like short-term memory, long-term memory, holding the numbers in your head and being able to do the calculations for that matter. That makes sense to me. But there's a second reason, which is that the social reason, the enumeracy that's out there, you know, like once you give a student a reason to fail, so I'm just not a numbers person, for example, once you've given the student the reason to fail, you know, it's easy for them to pass that on to the next subject, meaning that well, maybe I'm not a history person or maybe I'm not a social studies person either. So the integrity, as far as mathematics goes, tends to compromise everything. From there, the fifth grade math scores predict how students do in middle school. Middle school math scores predict whether a student will drop out of high school. We have 75% of high school students that are not proficient at high school mathematics. That's leading to a 69% rate of switching from a STEM major to a non-STEM major. It used to be that the STEM majors would go to business because that would be the next place where you could earn money. But the business schools now are having issues because business is now so statistically driven. So most of the most of the students are switching to humanities, which in itself is not necessarily a bad thing, but the salaries are capped. So this is actually driving uh, an economic issue in the United States. And on top of that, it's driving a social issue, which is the cycle of poverty, because if we could get students to understand mathematics and get into those higher paying jobs, then everyone would have an equal opportunity. And what we just learned was that it was over at kindergarten and no one really had a chance but the top 20% income earners. You took one of my questions that I was going to ask you for your own experience being in computer science. I see a fairly natural connection to mathematics and computer science. And to your point, uh, I actually deal a bit in data and analytics, which makes sense to have a very solid core in math. So that is a little concerning to hear data that 
people's natural move. If they realize it has to be more math oriented from a business standpoint, they would get even further away from it rather than meet the challenge. Computer science is a branch of mathematics. In fact, in many universities, they're housed in the same departments until the 2000s, until the tech bubble made computer science large enough that it could split off on its own, really. The computer is a mathematical machine, right? And to work with it, you have to be able to deal on the level of algebra, which is actually where, we, where we've lost most students, because what we see is that the students can memorize. So they can use memorization as a strategy to get through addition, multiplication, fractions. They can memorize the strategies to solve fractions, and then they get to algebra, and then it doesn't make a lot of sense, because on a language level, if you memorize your multiplication tables, but you didn't understand what multiplication was, now someone throws seven times X at you, and that doesn't mean anything. Is that a symptom of the way that schools present math, or is it really just what you were describing for the incoming kindergartners that there's a large percentage that may start behind and they just struggle to ever catch up and think of math in a different way than memorizing a language? So the issue is that of language. So the way the way I think about it is jargon. So since you've done some tech stuff, I think you'll connect with this, right? Is like whenever you get into a new tech stack, it's got its own jargon, right? And like every time you go into a new business or industry, they have their own jargon in that industry. And it's not so much that like it's not understandable. It's just that you have to take the time to understand it. And the problem is, is that like fundamentally what, what happens is, is that maybe the student doesn't kind of understand the, 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 the numbers, right? So as the kindergarten teacher moves on to two-digit numbers where the student didn't understand one-digit numbers, the issue then becomes that like it's, it's nearly impossible to fail kindergarten. I don't believe there is a standard where you fail kindergarten. And so you pass the student on. So they didn't really fundamentally understand the numbers. They're still having life experiences, so they're picking it up, but they're, they're far behind what the teacher is speaking to. Now, the problem then also becomes whether they had the experiences to connect, connect to it, right? Because the teacher could be saying something in class like five plus four equals nine, right? And they might be saying, so when I write this down, give me, it means give me five things, give me four more things. How many things do I have now? But if the student can't connect, you know, the writing to that experience, or maybe they haven't had the experience, or, you know, it's, it's hard to even say, right? But the experiences that the students are having is not directed. So the, the second thing that Alvaro showed me, and this was really the thing, was a second chart. And, and this chart showed the students going through the United States education system from basically uh, first grade through 12th grade. And it was the percentile at which they entered and the percentile at which they exited. And again, it was split out by income level and it was basically uh, by quartiles and it's four straight lines. It was, it was basically only the top two lines were kind of trending upwards. So only the top 50% income earners were, were trending upwards and, and the bottom 50 were flat to down. When you look at that, it basically says that a student that enters behind tends to stay behind. But if you think about that from the perspective of language, meaning that th if the student's not understanding the teacher, then of course they're not going to get caught up either. At the same time, if you look at that top line, it means that the student came in with the ability to understand the teacher. And over time, they, on average, they got better, which means that the education system actually works when the student understands the teacher, which 
I think is basically on the surface, right? So that's that should be a base assumption, really. Yeah, well, let me go back to what you're talking about with jargon. And actually, one of the core tenets of this show is whenever we hit a new topic, finance is the one I usually use as an example. There's a lot of jargon there. And to your point, any topic where people can get turned off because they don't feel like they're at the ground level or they don't have a foundation in the subject, they might just quit. Or like you were mentioning, they are given an excuse to quit. And certainly in the world of finance, which is also numbers, uh, you, you hear people that can do that when you get into investments and things like that. Is the way to get somebody back on track to essentially tear down the way that they were learning, essentially memorization and not understanding the logic behind math and then start it all over again? Or is there kind of a hybrid where they're still not getting way, way far behind and building on what they have, but change their perspective? Here's the thing is I can catch you up on the language, right? Like, so if you were playing with something in some technology or some business and someone had some funny name for it, but they were able to connect it back to something that you understand so that you understand the idea behind the word, then at that point, you're, you're actually pretty go. You can start reading the materials and you can, you can get to a place where you, where you can understand anything you want in that subject. So. What we do is we find out what their level of understanding is from a language perspective. From there, we, we start to feed students puzzles that are right at their levels that are building that language. And now the, the funny thing is, is that like with mathematics, you have to experience it. It's kind of like the colors, right? You can't really explain to someone what red is. Like I couldn't define it for you over this podcast. But I could show you red things and I could call them red, right? And then that's how, right? That's how your three-year-old learns the colors. At the same time, that's what's happening with mathematics, right? You got to have the experience of addition multiple times. We have to label it as addition. We have to be able to connect it to the written math. That feels like a game. And the student has to have that experience of actually playing with it to do it, right? Because you can't show someone this is addition and unless they connected the idea of five plus four in their mind, right? The give me the five, give me the four. Unless they connect that in their mind, they might not even understand addition to be what you're explaining it to be. The story is this, is that we've taken students that say are 12 years old, they're testing at the third grade level, and we will fill the language very quickly because a 12-year-old has had a lot of mathematical experiences on this earth. And now when we give them this, this framework where in a very methodical manner, we're trying to give them the idea and the word behind it, they pick it up very, very quickly. They still memorize their multiplication tables. So when they get to our multiplication, they finally connect the idea. Well, at that point, they're just multiplying so they can get through very quickly. I think you're touching on another point that has come up in our parenting episodes particularly around social media and the addictive qualities, comparing basically what do we expect adults to be able to do? And are we asking our kids to do something above and beyond that? So when you're describing this, my mind immediately goes to scenarios where there's a new employee that I'm trying to train or something like that. And many, many people will say, I learn by doing, or it needs to apply to something, or the phrase, use it or lose it. So it sounds like you're describing that very same thing. And again, adults learn the same way. So why wouldn't it make sense for kids to learn that way? I mean, this is just how human beings learn language. They have to have the experience 
in order to really kind of understand the idea. And then they have to have a word to assign to it. And in our case, right, with mathematics, it's symbols, right? Because, I mean, it's something that we don't want to write out all the time. Definitely. And then understanding what that means and having something to apply it to. In this case, we're talking about specific games that are tailored to learning the specific uh, lessons, right? Basically, yes. So you you touched on this in the introduction, but let me go back to it a little bit more as far as mathematics compared to language or learning to read. Was it purely based on the statistics that you were researching that had you land on mathematics? Are there other connections that are inherently there by focusing on math that will, again, continue to help kids in other areas? Or even long-term, do you have intentions to expand your work into other areas of learning? Well, so right now, what we're trying to do is we're trying to cover through calculus, because what we want to be able to do is we want to be able to take a student that's in the university that may be struggling at the beginning levels, right? So like they're studying, they're, they're struggling with statistics or they're struggling with calculus or they want to go into the sciences. And so we want to be able to take that student, be able to give them that language so that they can walk in and understand the professor. And that's really the philosophy, right? Is that if we could just get them to understand the teacher, then the teacher can focus on, you know, whatever they feel is important at that time. And so then after that, it, it's possible that we would delve into reading or, or into other subjects potentially sciences, potentially other like mathematical subjects. So like, for example, probability theory, coding, right? I mean, it makes sense actually to teach coding at the same time as algebra so that you can show ambiguous language to begin with. One of the biggest issues is that is that the way we treat the mathematical symbols is kind of ambiguous. We, in different contexts, we mean different things. And it's not really spelled out to the student, even though we could spell it out to them. And I think they're fully capable of understanding it if we literally say the words out loud, right? But for example, the equal sign, right? If you see the equal sign, three plus four equals. Well, to a lot of students, that might mean evaluate, right? So you want to see seven there. Whereas the equal sign, when we're using it in algebra, is actually the equality, meaning that we want both sides of the equation to be... Uh, to have the same quantity, to have equal quantity. And so if you start subtracting five from one side, you have to subtract five from the other side in order to continue to have true statements, right? And and that actually then goes into coding, right? So like in coding, when you see the equal sign, it could mean evaluate. It could mean test to see if the quantities are equal. So we're, we are kind of ambiguous because it's, because it's a shorthand, right? And so to show the student right up front that this is this is just a language. There's no right or wrong. We're going to use these symbols in a lot of different ways. And if you don't know, please ask, right? Because the, that's where the fear, that's where the math anxiety steps in where, well, if I don't know this, it means something. It means I'm stupid. It means, I don't know, God knows what, right? But whatever meaning is then added to this by the student, now it becomes, well, I can't say it out loud. I can't ask the questions out loud to disambiguate. Let me ask you Another question kind of connecting these together, you're also mentioning the types of careers that people get into or what they study in college. Is there any correlation to a student's understanding in mathematics and then job satisfaction in these types of careers? Because I think that's something that people are certainly trying to balance in today's day and age and connecting some of what we're talking about, if somebody says I'm not a numbers 
person is there once they is it because they don't understand it and just don't want to engage and once they do understand it there might even be an appreciation and dare i say passion (laughs) comes from that understanding that then connects all the dots that hopefully you're going into a career path that not only has the economic advantages to your point but also gives more of a sense of passion The, the more time you invest in something the more you want to be doing it and I think this idea of job satisfaction, it's kind of nebulous, right? I mean, I, I don't believe that I've seen any data, for example, that says that if you do more math, you're more satisfied with your job. Though, at the same time, I think the more aligned you are with truth and, and building something that's bigger than yourself, the more satisfied as a human you're going to be. So it's just hard to balance. What I can say is that We've had students coming into our system where they hated math and they they come out feeling confident in math. And that's really what our mission is. So what we do is our, we, we chose our mission to be empower children with mathematics. So everything that we do is look through that lens, meaning like, for example, we've had parents come back to us and say, well, it wouldn't it be nicer if there was like some rewards or like stickers that the kids could get uh, by doing the math. And we've seen research that says, if you, for example, you know, reward the student uh, for doing the math, then the math might become work. And what we've done is we've kind of made math the reward at the same time by making it kind of a puzzle game. So the reward is you solve the puzzle, which is that you did the math. And actually, that happens to be like a thing, right? Like Sudoku is, is a good example of you're doing some mathematics, it's a puzzle and you're having fun. The real issue is, is when you've given yourself a reason to fail, it's likely to become true, right? I mean, this, this, this comes into this whole self-fulfilling prophecy type of thing. I'm not a numbers person, so you don't try to be a numbers person, so you don't never become a numbers person. Whether you would have enjoyed it or not, I mean, it's very challenging for me to speculate, but I don't see any reason to disempower children in that in that manner. The word that I'm hanging on to that you mentioned is confidence. And I would add to that competence when you get to the job world. I think both of those traits in something that you're doing tend to at least put you in a position where you would feel more satisfied with the overall work that you're doing. And I can say to your other example, my son is in soccer right now and he wasn't very good at it the first couple of games. And actually he just scored his first goal this last weekend and all of a sudden it's fun. Uh, and, and it's kind of putting in that work and it's that confidence that, that comes into play. So whether it's whatever subject, it doesn't have to be math like we're talking about, but, uh, it, when that confidence and then you feel competent in your abilities, I would imagine there is, some amount of purpose and happiness that comes from what you're doing. So I I think there are probably some overlays between those. Something else I wanted to really get your opinion on with the lockdowns going on. Most schools are in some form of virtual right now. We know that parents are definitely doing more than they used to, at least with their children's education. What's your perspective on the challenges that are being faced with lockdowns and then also how technology can either, well, if it can replace certain face-to-face interactions or how it should complement face-to-face interactions? The remote learning is a very interesting situation because, I mean, it's already kind of challenging enough 
um, in a classroom with 30 on one to make sure that all the students kind of understand, especially with mathematics, because it really is kind of a one on one type of conversation to see if the student is understanding the ideas. And word problems is one way you could do it through like a test, for example, but it is very challenging for the, the teacher to get a sense of understanding. And now you kind of throw it in on Zoom and you got to imagine it's nearly impossible because at least when you're standing in front of the classroom, you can look at the student's face and, and kind of determine whether they're understanding, right? Though that's nearly impossible now on Zoom 30 to 1. So I think it's got to be very challenging for these teachers. And um, I think they got a very challenging job in front of them to, to, to take this on. And so I commend them for that. And, and now they have the on-off type schedules and et cetera. It's, it's just got to be challenging. I'm sure once they get a rhythm that uh, things will start to come together. At the same time, where could they use technology to, to help them? We've built a dashboard for the teachers so that they can see the level of understanding based on the evaluation that our system's constantly doing. And that should be able to help them break their students into the right cohorts so they could talk to them at their level. And I mean, there's, I think there's a lot of innovative ways that technology can help, but typically the technology world is pretty slow to move. So they're, they're buying off the self solutions that were kind of intended for a different world. And it's hard to even say whether people will build solutions for a two-day school week world because theoretically speaking we might be back at schools fully open in january or a year from january right so it's just really challenging even to to navigate this landscape just because it might be short term you know what i mean at the same time i think the solutions that come out will will be able to make remote learning more feasible which probably is a good thing long run because once you can get people out of the cities where, where the cost is so high and have them play on an equal level playing field outside, right? Outside, say, in the rural areas where it's a lot cheaper to live, well, then that's, that's when real change can happen. Actually, as luck would have it for our conversation, I had just been researching some local brick and mortar places that have after school reading math for my kindergartner. And I will say that the price for this brick and mortar place is significantly more than what your offering is uh, for elephant learning. So I, I think you're right that as far as accessibility is concerned and using technology in a certain way for the standard lessons or for the problems, stuff like that may at least make it more accessible to more people cost wise. And then I, I'm thinking there's going to be some adjustment to how much of it can be straight online as compared to what well, you mentioned, like a, a teacher that has 30 kids and doing Zoom. Oh my gosh, that seems crazy. And I know people in the education system would say it's crazy even in a classroom to try to be able to manage that. So it might maybe help bring the ratios down for the face-to-face -face part of it. Are your clients now, what tends to be the setting that they use the technology are is it most people that are kids are coming home and they log in and the parents are assisting them or are you seeing partnerships with schools where this kind of attention is being used directly with students and their teachers in the classroom so we we do have some teachers that have approached us and they want to be and that's why we created this dashboard for them so that they could get some information 
and we're just trying to figure out how do we how do we help them uh, how do we best help them there's that but there's also the settings that it's typically being used in it's typically apparent they're typically looking to supplement so it's a supplemental program right we're not going to actually cover all of the strategies to to solve problems that uh, that you might cover in one year in class but at the same time what we're trying to do is we're trying to be extremely effective and giving that student the language so that if they had to step into that class, they'd easily pick it up because they have a strong understanding of the base subject matter. So, for example, um, think addition and then think adding on a clock. Adding on a clock is really, really hard if you don't understand what addition is. But if you've already got a strong grasp of addition, then, I mean, it's not a big hoop to jump through to add on a clock. So by giving them those essentials, uh, we, we do help them quite a bit. There's homeschool parents in there that that are using this so that, for example, they could look at our system and say, oh, okay, so my student understands addition today. So if I did addition in the curriculum, he'd understand what I'm saying. So the frustration is reduced by quite a bit because all of the frustration, all of the tears or anxiety around math time mainly comes from the fact that it's not being understood. Meaning if you're trying to ram down what five plus four is as a memorization thing, and the student's not getting it. There's just not a lot of language you can use that will get them around that. You know what I mean? So it's got to be frustrating for the parents. It's got to be frustrating for the student. It's got to be anxiety causing, right? I mean, this is why we see what we see in the classroom. The homeschool parents benefiting quite a bit from this. And I think the, the other place where it's very beneficial is students that are behind. So like if the parent knows or the, uh, the student is struggling, the parent knows the student is struggling, we're looking at the grades and we're not happy with it. Maybe they have a lack of confidence already, right? So like they're exhibiting lack of confidence around it. Then this is a great product because we've seen students that, again, they, they're testing years behind and then they can come in. They can understand the teacher. They may not have all of the strategies, but they're able to pick them up very quickly. I applaud any kind of roadmap for <laughs> any area that somebody needs to get better in schooling health or otherwise and if i were to boil down one of the many frustrations probably for parents right now having to assist and supplement with virtual school probably one of them is that unknown obviously when schools got out early in the spring it was just madness because there wasn't a a roadmap for how things were going to pick back up. And from what I understand, nationally speaking, it probably very much depends on the school district for how well they were able to roll out virtual for this year. So I would think for any parent that gets a, a roadmap available to them for, in this case, getting a student back on track in the classroom, that would be at least in and of itself a bit of a relief. And how is it best for a parent or whoever else is guiding their child through the program to make sure the kid is is understanding the content in the way they're supposed to again back to the original theme that they're using critical thinking skills and not just continuing to memorize is are there any additional things parents should be looking for even when they're going through the program when their child is going through the program what my specialty has been uh as far as computer science has been concerned and what i've done for most of my adult career is look at problems and figure out how do I automate basically as much as I can, right? Like so that the human being involved has to put in minimal effort. And I think that's what we've ended up building here. So 
Um, our reports within the system help the parent understand what the student is working on, how we're teaching it, um, how the student's answering the questions. So you can see like how long they're taking to answer, whether it's correct or incorrect. And you can even try it in parent mode. So you can hit try on any of the questions. So you can see the question that we're trying to get across. And then we give the parent a technique, which is what we're calling the why method. So if a student is struggling with anything, our system will alert to it, meaning that it's not fully automatic, but it's as automated as we can make it in that the parent's going to step in potentially only when there's a problem or only when they want to. So if you want to play with your kid outside the system, inside the reports, we actually give you advice on games that you can play and how to make it fun. But at the same time, if we detect a problem, we're going to email the parent. Um, we're going to show it on the dashboard and then we give the parent the why method. And it's, it's this simple. Um, and it, and it's actually useful for any subject. So anywhere where you, you might be determining that the student has a lack of understanding. Um, go ahead and let the student answer the question incorrectly and then ask them why they think that's the right answer. And when they tell you uh, why they think that's the right answer in that you're going to be able to see what the student doesn't understand and you're either going to be able to give them a hint or you're going to be able to clarify for them. And I'll give you two concrete examples because if um, whoever's listening to this walks away with this one thing, it's going to empower them anywhere that they have to help their their child. So one example was that um, we've had some parents come back and I was talking with one and she says, well, he's struggling with this question. And the question goes like this is we have two columns of things. And um, we ask first, which column has more, the left one or the right one? So the right one has more. And it, then it says, how many more does it have? And he was answering 13 because there was 13 in the right column, which had more. And so it sounds, I said to her, it sounds like he's kind of having issues with the language of how many more. Like, so in this case, how many more is referring to the difference, but it sounds like he's just connecting it to, well, this column had more. So how many are in the column that has more? And so she was able to clarify that question for the student. They were able to move on. Another example along the same lines was uh, a friend of mine. Um, and he had a, he has a daughter that he asked a subtraction question to, and he found out that she had conflated older and taller. And so he was able to distinguish, well, older means age and taller means height. And so then she was able to answer the subtraction question. So this, I mean, this really works anywhere for that purpose. And then at the same time, for example, it might just be an accident or it might be a mistake, or you might be able to give a hint where you're, you're saying, imagine the lines going across the screen. It really depends on the scenario, but for even just connecting it to the written math. So for example, I was working with a, uh, with a student who brought up a multiplication question where it was four groups of five things. And I watched as she counted all of the items to get 20. And then we asked her, well, what's four times five? And she quickly responded 20. And then she also connected to, oh, this is where you'd use multiplication. So very quickly, she made that connection. And then the next problem, she was able to multiply and get the answer. So, it, you know, like this, this method really helps the parent even outside of mathematics. Uh, so like with reading, like if, if the student's not understanding the words, you're going to find out because they're going to say, well, because it said this and that doesn't mean what you think it means. Right. Again, I think the examples go into showing the power of emphasizing critical thinking and problem solving rather than straight memorization, hopefully to build your foundation, to continue to build your life learning around. Do you think that the two part question, do you think that 
schools are going to shift a little bit into that form, emphasis on the critical thinking rather than, let's say, fact memorization and then answering it back out on a test and, and nothing more than that. And depending on how you feel that's going, uh, where do you feel like you fit in in either helping carve a path or, again, supplementing in some way? The real challenge is that the education system in the United States and probably in any country is kind of bureaucratic in that, you know, like there's good intentions maybe on the top on the top layer, but it doesn't always get to the bottom layer. And so my understanding is that Common Core was already trying to address this shift um, from from trying to memorize to trying to be able to solve the problem. Though in implementation, it ends up kind of just frustrating parents and pissing them off. I've been on so many Uber rides where, you know, they're just like very, very anti-Common Core. And I mean, I at the time, I didn't have a very strong understanding of what Common Core was. I just got the understanding that the parents are frustrated and it's mainly because the math quote unquote isn't being taught the way they were being taught it. I can understand that. So I don't think that common core is a necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's a standard, right? And the problem is that again, in implementation, we alienate the parent. And if they, if the parents alienated, the result is never going to be good. Um, so we need to have something that brings the parents on board um, so that's, I think that's the first part of, of, of what's being asked here. The second part of it is this, is that there's a strong discounting factor that's occurring. It's hard to even pinpoint the problem. We saw a psychological study that said that students could not understand um, logical reasoning, which we're teaching it in our system just to blatantly <laughs> go into the face of this paper, really. I mean, I think Alvaro found it. And both me and him looked at it and said, there's just, I mean, what they're doing here is not even correct. Meaning that the way they were asking or posing the questions mathematically was not a correct way to pose the question. It wasn't fair to the student without having given the student a definition of some sort, right? Uh, and a very methodical definition, a very mathematical definition. So uh, it's challenging to say then with research like that out there with scientists saying that students can't do it, that these guys will change the way they're doing it, even though we know for a fact that they can do this. And in fact, we intend to, we intended to teach it so that we could teach software programming, which we know middle schoolers can do. I'm a middle schooler that learned to program. So, I mean, heck they're teaching computer science in some, in some of these high schools. So, it's just hard to see how a systematic change would occur without maybe revamping the entire system and maybe retraining the teachers that are there. At the same time, I mean, there's a lot of good teacher training out there. I mean, a lot of the resources that we got are from uh, researchers that are showing things that we know to be true, meaning that when we evaluate it, it's logically true, not just, oh, 60% of the kids did this. This is one of the kind of the big differences between mathematics and science, right? They don't consider mathematics, mathematicians, scientists, or maybe they do. I don't really know, but I kind of get the feeling they don't. But, I mean, the things that I tended to deal with were logically true, proven to be true. So when we look at some of these things and we say, well, that's clearly got to be true, again, because if the student understands the teacher, then they're definitely going to see a better chance of success than not. 
Yeah, and I'm, I'm actually laughing to myself a little bit. I don't know if they consider uh, mathematicians scientists or not either. But I've always thought one of the beauties of math is the answer is the answer. Now, of course, the theme is you need to be able to understand how you got to the answer. But at least, at least there is a finality to what a correct answer is and what a not correct answer is uh so <laughs> i don't know if that discounts some uh, math as being a science i wouldn't think so but gosh it seems like anymore when there's so much information out there and it's hard to distill what's more correct than something else <laughs> I, i'd like to believe math stands alone as something that is uh, hard to distort what is true and what's not true I don't know. It's it, and it's the foundation of 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 what science is using, right? I mean, the the statistical methods that they're using to prove these, it's all it's all data science, all data analytics, is is mathematics, right? So if they're trying to take something that's happening in the real world and design an experiment, and then use mathematics as a tool to say what's more likely to be true than false. And I mean, obviously, this can be manipulated, but at the same time, or I mean, or you can make mistakes, right? But at the same time, right, it is the foundation upon which all of this is built. And so, to some degree, uh, I mean, some respect needs to be shown back towards it. I also want to touch on your first example of parents, actually, in one of our prior episodes about innovations in education, my guest had a very similar anecdote that parents are resistant to change because it's different than what their experience was with school. Actually, the example she gave was removing certain classes for others that may be more appropriate for work world or whatever the passions might be for the students. So it sounds like that rings true for the parents to have an open mind when they're being presented with new ways of doing things, which well, they just need a little help really is all it is. And so what we've done is, and, and I mean, we're in the pro process of doing it. So we're putting out more coaching videos to help the parent at the level of the student to understand. So, Cause like right now you have to read the thing. Um, but if we had a video there where we discussed like, Hey, in this, problem if you gave this hint for example or that hint or maybe even some of the common misunderstandings that are happening it's just a matter of like i think the best way to say it is this is when alvaro first came to me and he told me this my child was on on the way i was i had a uh in like a six month pregnant wife so three months away from having a, a child of my own and i started to think about it and i said well how am i going to get my child to be able to count to 10 the way kindergarten is prescribing it. And I couldn't come up with anything. And I mean, I was like, well, I got a PhD in math and I can't come up with anything. Like, what is the, what does the regular parent have a shot at this at? I mean, so first of all, there's that fear of like, how am I going to handle this? And of course, right. There's the, how did we learn it? So there's a reversion to how do you do it? Uh, strategy when that's not really the problem. The problem is, a uh, a language problem. So we don't even have the right strategies for it. And it's okay because the thing is, is that this is just how math has been taught for generation after generation. Just here, add until you understand what it is. And some kids pick it up and some kids don't, right? I, I think it's completely understandable that the parent has that frustration and aversion. 
And I think the problem is, is that if we could just help them in the what to do when that happens, then they would have tools. And so that, that's ultimately how we empower them is, is by giving them the tools and the what to do's in different scenarios so that they can find a way to empower themselves and empower their children. And I'm completely theorizing here, but I would imagine for parents, it's partly getting out of a comfort zone. And if you're having to do math or whatever in a different way, that might be taking you out of your comfort zone. But maybe there's a good silver lining in that in the relationship with the child that you can say, oh, this is a different way for me to do this problem. I'm going to learn something new that's outside of my comfort zone, just like you, the child, are outside of your comfort zone learning something new. And this is how learning works. So who knows? Maybe even being able to admit that would have more than just the benefit of solving the problem in in front of the person uh, and, and solving the math problem. Again, this boils down to implementation. There's nothing inside of our system that the parent would find confusing. Uh, and so therefore, it's, it's, it's very, very straightforward because everything's kind of very visual, very hands-on. You're seeing it happen on the screen kind of thing, right? We're not doing it abstractly where it's five plus four and then the student has to answer. There's a ton of that stuff out there, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't even try to build that if that's what Alvaro came to me with. I think it's just if they, if they come in and they can see what the idea is and how we're trying to convey it to the student, they've had enough life experience that they'll look at it and they'll see it. I think some of the things that the the teacher is handing back, it, I mean, it's just tr it's triggering all of the fears. It's triggering right or wrong. This is the wrong way to do it, even though you got the right answer. That kind of idea, it, it's just it's just not a good idea to alienate the parent. The outcome on a statistical scale will be will be much worse, right? And there's so many parents out there. They come onto our Facebook page and and they're literally like just like oh we hate Common Core and like. If, if there was a common core post, um, it, it's literally what starts the fight in mathematics. So like if you want controversy in mathematics, it's common core. And, and so like, I think we just got to be sensitive to that because we don't want to alienate those parents. And at the same time, right. I mean, I don't know what they're looking at or how different it is to say to them. Right. I just know that it doesn't have to be that hard. And if we're seeing nothing else from the current way we're having to do school, there needs to be some amount of teamwork between the school system teachers and the parents uh, so that the students have a full support system. And like you, I don't really have any experience with Common Core yet because my oldest just started kindergarten. But I do know that I've experienced similar ire from parents whenever they hear Common Core. Apparently, it is a four-letter word in the education system for whatever reason. So I'll hold my uh, thoughts on it, I guess, until I get there or, or whatever the version ends up being. But uh, I definitely hear you. I've heard very similar types of comments. Well, Aditya, that's all I had for you today. Is there anything that we didn't touch on before uh, I let you go? Yeah. If you want to learn more about Elephant Learning, just come on. Uh, just go to elephantlearning.com. Uh, you can also find us on the app stores, but the way to sign up is through our website. And then after you've signed up, you can download the app onto your student's uh, tablet or phone or computer or whatever. Perfect. And I'll put the link to the website on the show notes so it's easy for everybody to find you. Again, I appreciate you joining the show today and we'll be in touch. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on Apple, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get podcasts. If you'd like to be notified of future weekly episodes, please hit the subscribe button. If you'd like to help us even further, visit suburbanfolk.com and you'll find a donate button where all the money goes back into the show for you. Thanks for listening.